Act, it's important to note that the Act requires a situation that existing laws are unable to deal with. It doesn't have a carve-out for when political incompetence and miscommunications are getting in the way of this progress that was needed. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. With me on the show, journalist for True North and author of the recent book, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world, Andrew Lawton. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you have uh, a thorough, extensive knowledge of the convoy, where we stand with the Emergencies Act. Let's go back to the beginning here, uh, the beginnings of uh, something that did shake the world. Tamara Leach, Pat King, who are they? Why are they significant? Well, it depends on who you ask as far as what you call them, because the the word organizer, which is oftentimes in the broadest sense, people that were involved in in large ways at the upper echelons of the convoy. But the word organizer has a bit of baggage. So Pat King, for example, was a very controversial figure. He was involved in boosting and promoting the convoy early on. But there was a lot of friction between him and other organizers. And ultimately, they tried to push him out and and succeeded largely at doing that. But because he is so controversial, the mainstream media has oftentimes referred to him as an organizer. And that's where it gets tricky. But Tamara Leach, certainly, uh, she was involved early on in this. She was the fundraiser for this thing that presided over the campaign that raised in the end like $10 million twice. I mean, Tamara Leach, people have held up a number of things in in criticism of her. She was involved in the Western Independence uh, Party, the Maverick Party in the last federal election. But ultimately, she's always, always, always held firm to this idea that she wants a peaceful protest. She was very very diligent in making sure that all the money raised was accounted for. And it was interesting when she was taking the stand at the Public Order Emergency Commission, there wasn't even really that much criticism that seemed to be put towards her by lawyers that were on the other side of the aisle. And she's also been the one that I think has borne the brunt of the state's response to this, facing a myriad of criminal charges for her role in leading this convoy. And certainly, I'd say, becoming a very influential figure of it. Hmm. In a nutshell, how would you describe the convoy, uh, its objective, and uh, what happened in like a nonpartisan way? How would you put that to it was it was a very loose coalition of people from across the country that were fed up with vaccine mandates and covid restrictions and because it was such a a loose coalition it was very grassroots it was not something that had a a top-down hierarchy where people were showing up because someone told them to people that felt they aligned with the the movement uh, showed up and showed their support and and as we saw it wasn't just the group in ottawa there were also people that were inspired by it and ran their own sort of copycat protests in Coots, Alberta and Windsor, Ontario, and and so on. But I mean, at its core, it was a protest against vaccine mandates and COVID restrictions. Before we get to this Emergency Act and the the hearings that are playing out right now, uh, you you highlight in your book some really interesting uh, behind closed doors uh, mediation that takes place. Um, Razzo and French, uh, both individuals that seem to have contacts on on both sides of the aisle here. Did these efforts get just squashed when the Emergencies Act came in? 
Basically, yes. And and just to give like the 30 second context on this, the protests had been going on for about two and a half weeks by this point, and there had been no progress, no movement. And the protesters were not interested in leaving home. A couple of channels of communication opened up between the city of Ottawa and the convoy leaders and representing the convoy leaders was Tom Morazzo and also the lawyers, uh, Keith Wilson and Eva Chipiak. And they ended up having a an agreement brokered by Dean French, who was formerly Doug Ford's chief of staff, who knew Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, and was supportive of the convoy. And they had reached this agreement that the convoy protesters would move their trucks away from residential areas onto Wellington Street, and the ones that couldn't fit on Wellington would leave town. And this was going to take three days to do, but the truckers were actually doing it, and they had gotten buy-in. And it was on that third day that the Emergencies Act came into play and all of a sudden the the deal was off and it it wasn't the convoy protesters that called off the deal. It was the government and then by extension police. And I'm convinced that if that had just gone on another day, the case for the Emergencies Act would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for the federal government to make. So who called off the deal? The, the, The federal government called off the deal by default of calling the Emergencies Act? Well, so, I mean, the federal government was not a part of the deal, so it didn't have the ability to say the deal is off. But uh, by the federal government's direction, the police were taking very different approaches to this. So the deal fell apart and the parliamentary precinct security, which have a bit more oversight on Wellington Street. They also, we learned in the course of the commission hearings, uh, stopped allowing the movement of trucks as well. And there was a bit of a breakdown between them and police. And I, I think that's actually one of the stories here that is interesting is just how much miscommunication there was between all of these different agencies and levels of government throughout this. Yeah, kind of a perfect storm, Andrew, because you wouldn't expect French and Marazzo to confide in the federal government when they're trying to make this happen. And then, of course, they've got an agenda that they want to accomplish. So it's how would the communication have, have gone better in hindsight? I mean, that is difficult to answer, but I I think that, you know, when you just look at the Emergencies Act, it's important to note that the act requires a situation that existing laws are unable to deal with. It doesn't have a carve out for when political incompetence and miscommunications are getting in the way of these sorts of of this progress that was needed. So I, I think that if the federal government had taken leadership, And the federal government had said, you know what, we're going to hear them out. We're going to meet with them. It would have been a huge step in the right direction. And it was something that was actively rejected at every stage by the feds. And do you think the rejection in part came because of the COVID variant that was spreading? Or was it just a a sense of just Trudeau drawing a line in the sand that what they what was being done was absolutely wrong? I think it was absolutely a line of the sand. I mean, the the rhetoric that the federal government used about this protest, Justin Trudeau's famous line of the fringe minority with unacceptable views, it was clear from the get-go that they took a position that involved vilifying these people. And, And I think that was very premature. And even the intelligence reports we've seen from police and from CSIS have said they did not pose a security threat. So once you take that off the table and realize this is just a group of people with different political views, the vilification of them was very much unjustified. Mm. Let's get into what also is happening in the third day outside of Ottawa. There are blockades that have taken place at different border crossings uh, from Canada's side into the U.S. 
How much does that play a factor in the PR piece that the federal government puts out to pull this emergency act card? Well, I mean, in the PR campaign, very significant. And I, and I think justifiably so, because even a lot of the convoy's defenders, and I, I'm thinking notably of conservative members of parliament here, drew a line when they were blocking the borders and when the Windsor Ambassador Bridge in particular was shut down, because this is a major thoroughfare. It was disrupting trade, albeit temporarily. And it was, again, uh, really a contradiction of how conservatives have always been on critical infrastructure. The, the blockade in Ottawa was disruptive, but it wasn't something that couldn't be worked around. It, it wasn't blocking anyone from getting where they needed to go when all was said and done. So I think that was pretty key here. But at the same time, I also have to include the caveat that the police were had already cleared Windsor before the Emergencies Act was invoked. And the Coots uh, uh, blockade in Alberta was just one day away from being completely broken up. And again, the police did not use Emergencies Act powers to do it. But I think it definitely changed the government's narrative on this because it really made it look like a national thing instead of just a downtown Ottawa thing. Hmm. And. The Emergencies Act, the precedents, can we get into the history behind uh, where this all came from? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a short history because there isn't any. The, the Emergencies Act has never been used before, not throughout COVID, not throughout the uh, OCA standoff, not throughout any number of other national crises, including 9-11. The bill came about in the 80s, and it was meant to be an update to the War Measures Act, which has been used three times in Canadian history, once in World War I, once in World War II, and the third, very controversially, in the FLQ crisis in Quebec in the 1970s. And I say controversially because the War Measures Act was invoked in a non-war scenario, but there had actually been casualties. People, Someone had died in the FLQ crisis. So the, the Emergencies Act was meant to be an update. It was meant to incorporate the charter, and it was meant to have a bit more of a broad application. So there are public welfare emergencies. There are public order emergencies. And that was the category that was used by the Trudeau government. But even so, it has a very high threshold, a, a very high threshold and one that actually still relies on a threat to the security of Canada as defined by the CSIS Act. And I think that's very key here. So we are not talking about something that's meant to be used lightly. In relation to the charter, that was brought up a lot by, by protesters. What was the bargaining chip they've been drawing on, would you say primarily, and for people that don't have as much knowledge on this, they should know that contradicts the Emergencies Act? So, I mean, the, the federal government, so let me back up. So the Emergencies Act says it has to be subject to the charter, which the War Measures Act did not because it was around when the charter didn't exist. So the federal government was leaning on that quite heavily when invoking the act and even after. And they would say that, oh, well, anything we do is subject to the charter. Ergo, it's not affecting your civil liberties. But I think it's very apparent that saying something is compliant with the charter doesn't mean it actually is compliant with the charter. And to challenge the charter compliance of this thing, it takes years of court battles to do it. So on the ground, in the here and now, people's charter rights were absolutely threatened. And I say this, uh, one notable example, the charter has a right to press freedom. Well, journalists were threatened with arrest if they were in the wrong area or what police said were the wrong area 
reporting on this. People have a right to peaceful protest, even under the Emergencies Act. But people that didn't have trucks were told they couldn't go down to Parliament Hill to stand on the front lawn peacefully without blocking the street and protesting. So it's very apparent that the claim of charter compliance did not equate to the reality on the ground. Would it have been warranted for the Emergencies Act to come into play just for the blockades that happened at the border? It depends. I I would still say no, because the blockades were cleared with normal policing powers. And I think that part is key here. And the Emergencies Act is abundantly clear that the situation cannot be dealt with by any other existing laws. And if police were able to use their normal policing powers to get in there, then there's no need for the act. So right now, the Emergencies Act is under a microscope and the Public Order Emergency Commission is listening to a whole bunch of people that took part in this. Uh, Where are we at with that and where are we going? So the Emergencies Act has a mandatory review built into it anytime it's invoked. So right now that review is underway and the commissioner, who is an Ontario judge, has to submit a report by uh, whatever the specific date is in February. So within one year of the revocation of the Emergencies Act. So I think that's like February 2020th or something or 17th, whatever it is. That report will assess the basis. It'll offer some conclusions, maybe some recommendations, but it's not a finding of guilt and it's not a finding of liability. So uh, he could come right out and say the Emergencies Act was not justified, but if he does, that doesn't actually translate to any real consequence for the government. Hmm. But it will generate a consequence from people like you and me who are going to be watching this with interest. Yeah, it will certainly, certainly affect the political discourse on this and and House of Commons debates and uh, political accountability from the public media discourse. And it will also inform, we hope, future usages of the Emergencies Act if they come. Now, again, it's taken 40 years for the first one to Hmm. come. uh, So we hope it doesn't become a a regular thing. But absolutely, I'm, I'm hoping that what comes out is very decisive and unambiguous. Andrew, have you uncovered anything pertaining to that decision to call the Emergencies Act, like who Trudeau spoke to, who he confided in before he he pulled this this big Trump card? I I mean, not me personally, uh, because my book was focused on the origins of and the operations of the protest itself, not as much the government response. But we've certainly seen through the course of the Public Order Emergency Commission that the government was getting advice from all sorts of people. Police were telling them that they didn't were or police were not saying, though, that they needed the Emergencies Act. CSIS, the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked, told the government they did not see a national security threat as defined by the Emergencies Act. So we were hearing certainly testimony that's been affirming what a lot of people suspected, which is that no one was asking for it. But where the government derived the criteria to actually invoke this, we don't yet know. And the media, I mean, we've you, you lay this out in your book that uh, it was all very negative of the convoy and, and linking it to blockades and sort of painting with a bigger brush outline that in your book pretty clearly the exchange that he has with journalists and he's not really able to make a distinction Uh, but beyond that uh you do point out in the beginning of your book how the the kind of the the pr unofficial representative for the convoy made this decision in the beginning to only speak to what they deem to be genuine 
media. Do you think in some ways that stabbed them in the foot because they didn't talk to the the mainstream side that maybe would have painted it in a bit more of an accurate picture? There was a bit of a yeah, there was a bit of a conflict even among the the organizers on that. The the comment I believe you're referring to in, in the book was from Benjamin Dichter, who was the official spokesperson for the convoy. And uh, he had a very pointed strategy of excluding the mainstream media. And he was happy to talk to independent media. He appeared on my show. He had uh, National Post columnists and did the Epic Times and podcasts and all that. But he wouldn't talk to CTV, CBC, the Toronto Star. And other organizers said, well, you know, maybe we should just give them the opportunity to come. And if they say something that's wrong, we call them out for it. But we at least tell them our side of it. My personal opinion is that there's somewhere in the middle. I, I don't think you should be doing exclusive interviews to media outlets that are against you, but to let them at your press conferences, I would say yes. And then if they get it wrong, you call them out for that. But I think you have to give people the opportunity to show you what they're about before you make that call. Mm. And Andrew, going back to some of those mediators that we brought up, Marazzo and French, when the Emergencies Act came down the pipe, like were their efforts, were they... Uh, like any was there anything more that developed at all after that with them no because at that point the diplomatic uh, solution if you will is off the table i I mean there was a a development on the i believe it was the sunday or the saturday after the emergency after the the police crackdown um where tom morazzo had given a press a a press conference at the lord elgin hotel and he was just uh calling for the peaceful withdrawal uh, of people he said we're done this is you know we've made our point we're leaving but at that point the discussions with the city discussions with police were were no longer relevant because uh, the federal government had basically taken charge of the situation. I see. Andrew, how did the Emergencies Act work in real time? What did it look like for the government's control? What they did do is use a very heavy-handed power to bar people from entering downtown Ottawa. They did go after the bank accounts. And they also, and I think this was the part that was really interesting, they conscripted tow truck drivers. So they were having difficulty finding tow truck drivers that wanted to remove the truck. So they actually uh, found a way to compel them with threat of criminal charges if they didn't go along with it. Hmm. Now, Andrew, coming out of this... Is there any warrant for tweaking the Emergencies Act itself for what should be used in future events? I I think it absolutely should. And I I mean, I I would say personally that the criteria are very clear. And I think that it's clear that the government didn't meet the criteria. That said, if there's more clarification that is needed, then, then absolutely do that. I would also put in some limitations on what powers can actually be used. Uh, For example, the bank account freezes does not, uh, in my view, correspond with the problem that the government was trying to solve, which was trucks blockading streets in Ottawa. So I think absolutely that's something that should come of it. But I think also we need to look at the bigger picture here and that even if you don't like the convoy, that doesn't mean you have to like the Emergencies Act. There are a lot of people that uh, said, you know what, we're, we're ambivalent or against the convoy, but we are very much uh, against the Emergencies Act as well. And I think that you could agree that this was a bad thing, agree it was a good thing, while also not supporting the act. And I think that's a distinction that is important for people. How much of the resolution that comes from this, not just in the hearings, but just beyond the commentary from media, the conversations around the dinner table, how much of this can help going forward to uh, really kind of bring down the culture wars that appear to be 
brewing in this country? It's difficult. I, I think, you know, the convoy story was really an example of a protest by people that felt they no longer had a place in civil society, people that felt they were outside the mainstream. And I don't think the government's rhetoric did anything to help that. Now, uh, as the protest went on, people, I think, who started out not supportive became supportive. Some people who started out supportive may have, be, may have become not supportive. But I, I think breaking through that, it's important to understand why this came about. And it was people that felt like they had been otherized by their government. Mm. I, I don't think that's ever something we want to put Canadian citizens in. And just in closing, why write this book? Uh, you know, it's funny. I wrote it because I wanted to read it. Uh, there, there was so much that <laughs> I felt was not being told, was not being discussed. And as I was going up there, I'm like, man, someone's... And, and eventually I, I kept complaining to a friend of mine who said, just shut up and write it yourself. So I did. Thank you so much for this, this time, Andrew Lawton. And check out this book, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Uh, some necessary reading as you take in these public hearings that are going to be going on for the next couple months. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to find out any more about the events pertaining to this public inquiry for the Emergencies Act, plus also where to find Andrew Lawton's new book, you can head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Do check out the Culture at a Crossroads archived at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And we invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.